All right, we viewed already the two relationships which believers had with the Lord as it related, first of all, to the Old Covenant and then to the New Covenant. And I want you to see the continuity that follows in these now. And under the Old Covenant, the believer knew justification. And under the New Covenant, he knows what? Salvation. No one under the Old Covenant ever experienced salvation. It, salvation, as it's referred to, for example, so frequently by David in the Psalms, is a temporal thing and has to do with earthly circumstances, not with what is eternal. No one under the Old Covenant then was saved. No one under the Old Covenant was born again. The new birth is particularly unique to New Covenant relationship. The uh, uh, position of the believer in his uh, uh, relationship to the Father under the Old Covenant was as a servant, and under the New Covenant as a son. Now, just as a parenthetical uh, explanation, Israel as a nation is referred to under the Old Covenant in the term son. Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my son go. That is a collective relationship. It is a corporate relationship. belongs to the nation Israel in its eternal destiny before God, and it makes reference to her being the source of the birth of Messiah. The father took to himself a wife. Israel is the wife of Jehovah. Out of that wife he begot a son, the Lord Jesus, and bought for that son then a bride out of the Gentiles. So Israel in that sense is seen in the corporate relationship of a son. But individually they served as servants, i.e. Moses we mentioned a moment ago. All right. Now in John chapter 1, let me take you back there very quickly. We're going to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Chapter 1 and verse 1, <clears throat> uh, unfortunate uh, translation we have in the King James. I want to pick up some context. Verse 11, he came into his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. And the word children is the word technon, and it means born one, literally born one. Now, the translation in verse 12 is regrettable in that it, it would imply, if we pick it up on the surface of the King James, it would imply to us that upon receiving Jesus Christ, one becomes a son in the fullest sense of the word. By receiving Christ, I don't become a son, I become a born child. And because I become a born child, then I can grow into sonship. So sonship implies a maturity which belongs to us under the new covenant. Uh, before that time, we were kept under the law and the term used there is napios, and it comes over to the English in the word minor. We'll come back to that word momentarily. So under the Old Covenant then we were minors, and under the New Covenant we come to maturity as sons. Now I hasten to say this parenthetically, that there is nothing that is provided under the New Covenant and by the advent of the Holy Spirit which is not already ours positionally. Understand what we're saying now? In our standing before God, this is already our possession as sons, uh, for that matter, Romans 8, 29, glorified. We are already glorified positionally. But we're talking about what is the believer's experience experientially. And so he is growing to be a son. He is born a child. He is growing to be a son. All right? Now, new birth does not belong, then, to the old covenant believers. These all died in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, not having received the promises, they without us could not be made perfect, God having provided some better thing for us, chapter 11 and verse 40. So what we want to address now then is the experience of the believer as a son of God and what belongs to that uh, experience in, in terms of what is our privilege. All right, are you with us then? All right, a couple more parallels just to illustrate. Remember that the Old Covenant is illustrated in the children of Israel in the wilderness, whereas the matured believer is seen in a position of Canaan. And when we cross Jordan, 
we are moving not into redemption, but rather into sonship, into maturity. And the other side of the corn, when we cross Jordan, we're not moving into heaven either. The regrettable understanding that Canaan is a figure of heaven leaves a, lot of, well, it leaves a whole lot of questions, doesn't it? For example, who are you going to have to fight when you go to heaven? Immediately upon crossing Jordan, they met the enemies of the Lord and battle ensued. What war are you going to have to do or uh, engage in in the presence of God? Canaan is never in the scripture a figure of heaven. Uh, what lies beyond the Mediterranean, which was unseeable by those on the coasts of the land of Canaan, certainly viewed what was yet eternal in the lot of the believer. Canaan did not. When Moses went up on uh, Mount Pisgah and looked over into the land, he was not looking into what was going to be his when he, quote, died and went to heaven, unquote. He was looking, rather, at what was going to be the inheritance of those who were coming into sonship, which he, in this sojourn, was not going to experience. All right, so Jordan, then, gives to us a figure of the believer coming in to new birth. Any questions to this point? All right, go with me, then, to Joshua. Joshua chapter 4. I might add at this point, at the risk of a great money path, that the epistle to the Hebrews concerns itself with believers coming into sonship. Not going to heaven, the epistle to the Hebrews is not concerning itself primarily with justification gained or lost. It's concerning itself with the people of God coming into sonship, into a right relationship with Jesus Christ because of a finished work, on the basis of a finished work. It is for this reason, as we discussed in our last class, and Moses was kept out of the land because when he smote the rock the second time, when he was commanded to speak to the rock, he in fact was saying by that in a figure that Jesus Christ did not do a finished work in his work at the tree. And as a result of that, he was not permitted to enter the land. Sanctified me not, God said, in the presence of the people. All right, in Joshua 4 and 5, both of these chapters, God deals with the children of Israel coming to the river Jordan and making preparations to go into the land and, of course, the water standing up in a heap on one side and failing on the other side. There's a few verses then we just want to cite here in order to illustrate what we're after. Verse 8 of chapter 4. And the children of Israel did so as, Moses, as Joshua commanded, and they took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto a place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and there uh, they are unto this day. Now the figure, of course, is very beautiful. A couple of passages to parallel them, if we would. First of all, with regard to the stones being taken up out of the river Jordan, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, pardon me, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Yes, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, and 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5. Now this, of course, deals with the believer's identification in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is of interest to me that the children of Israel, that is the elders of Israel, were commanded to carry the stones out of the river, but Joshua set those up in the midst of the river. You'll notice that? Now you follow the parallel, that because of our identification with Jesus Christ in his death, we are also, Paul tells us in Romans 6, identified in his resurrection. As Christ is raised up from the dead, we also walk. We also walk in newness of life. So that when they took the stones out of the midst of the river, they were declaring by that that they had experienced a resurrection from the dead. But what about the stones in the midst of the river? We are also buried with him, aren't we? Romans 6, 4. Now here again, beloved, when you come to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, don't put water in that text. 
at the risk of gross repetition, in the words of Dr. Kenneth Weiss, the uh, uh, late uh, professor of Greek at Moody Bible Institute, he said, when you theological bloodhounds come to Romans chapter 6, you all start smelling for water and there's no water there. He was saying that to one of our Bible classes on an occasion. Romans chapter 6 does not deal with water baptism. It deals with spirit baptism. What happens in Romans 6, water cannot do. It requires a work of the Spirit of God. So we have been identified with him in his death. Well, who accomplished that? Us? Certainly not. The Lord himself carried that on. He bore our sins into the depths of the deepest sea, and that's what you have then in verse 9. And Joshua, which of course is simply the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus, or Yesu, and it means Jehovah saves, has borne our sins into the midst of the river, borne us into the midst of the river, and we are buried there. He set up a pillar of 12 stones, identifying the children of Israel then with those stones in the midst of the river, and the river came back over them and buried them, and there they are unto this day. In other words, we have been put permanently off the scene. Are you following me? And God no longer remembers us, but remembers us only as he sees us in his Son. I am crucified with Christ. That is, in fact, in the past tense, too. It would read literally, I have been crucified with Christ with the present result that I am still crucified. Nevertheless, I live. So there is a new resurrection in a new life. So when Joshua put the stones in the, in the bowels of the river, he declared by that we have been buried with him by a baptism into death. Scriptures in relation to this. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And we'll come to this momentarily. Joshua chapter 5, verses 2 and 7. 2 through 7 for the context, but 2 and 7 specifically. And also Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now I want to go to that and read it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I want to pick up some context with verse 9. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And how did all this happen? Buried with him in baptism, not water, spirit, buried with him in baptism, in which also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins, there's the stones buried, and the, the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he made alive together with him. There's the stone set up on the other side of the river, having forgiven you all trespasses. So in other words, when God put us out of the way, he put us in a place that we could not be remembered again, could not be seen before him again, and so our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. By the way, parenthetically, did I point out why he said east and west? I did, say, did I ever point that out here? I didn't want to unsure. All right, very good. Yes, indeed. All right, very good. I was not sure we had thrown that in. So uh, uh, as he's cast our sins in the depths of the deepest sea, he has buried them from his vision forever, and God now sees us standing righteous in the person of the Son, and because of that then, he can impart to us the life of his Spirit. So we have death, burial, and resurrection very beautifully figured in uh, the crossing of the river Jordan. In other words, Jordan speaks of new birth. Jordan speaks of new birth. All right, now, if you move over to verse 20, chapter 4, Joshua 4.20, and those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan did Joshua set up at Gilgal. Now this was the place of their first encampment at Gilgal, and it was the place where the tabernacle of God was first set up. And you remember that the tabernacle of God now has come into the land of Canaan, but ultimately is going to be replaced. 
the tabernacle of God has a view toward a temporary dwelling. Anytime you see the word tent, for example, it has a view toward a temporary dwelling as opposed to a house or a temple which has a view toward a permanent dwelling. So after they come into the land, I think this offers us one of the most beautiful figures of the believer's growth. After they come into the land, they begin with a tent and they end up with a temple. Uh, what is the uh, analogy there? Does anyone care to tell us? All right, it goes from child to son, but there's something more that's uh, viewed in it. We'll see that in a moment. Um, the, the temple as, uh, as a finished work. We are building, being built together in holy temple in the Lord, aren't we? I would suggest to you that the temple of Solomon gives a view toward the glorified body of Jesus Christ. The glorified body of Jesus Christ. Now, you understand, this, of course, that any typology in the Scripture is always multiple in its views. For example, David is a picture of the grace of God, he's a picture of the believer, he's a picture of the Lord Jesus, and so forth, and all of them very beautiful and perfect types. The same thing is true of the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon is a figure of the church on the day of Pentecost in a very marvelous way. It is at the same time a figure of the church glorified in the presence of the Lord. Now, we'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. We want to get to this matter of circumcision uh, before we get too far afield from Joshua. But I wanted to point verse 20 out to you. When they came into the land, they set the stones up at the place, testimony of resurrection life, at the place where the tent, or the tabernacle of God, was first erected. Now, in chapter 5, please, and verse 7. And their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. Now, as you read the uh, context here, of course, this is the new generation. There was no circumcision carried on for 38 years in the wilderness. And, of course, circumcision is the sign of the covenant, is it not? So now, when they come in, to the land of Canaan, there's going to be a circumcision of the new generation, and that circumcision we have just read in Colossians 2, 11 through 13, speaks of the circumcision of the heart which we have by the advent of the Holy Spirit. Because we have been raised in newness of life, God sends that Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is what produces new birth in us, and it is viewed in a figure in this circumcision. It is the circumcision of the heart. It's the receiving of a new heart from Him by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, lose anybody in that. You should be sure to understand that. Verse 7. 5-7, and their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. So this whole 40 years then, there was uh, uh, no fulfillment of the requirements of the covenant. We, lo we noted in that connection Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. We are identified then in his death and his burial and his resurrection, and that is viewed in the circumcision by receiving of a new life from him. That's the circumcision of our hearts. Another verse in that connection, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Now we have a circumcision of the heart. Paul said, in, in this body neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a what? New creation. New creation. So the new creation is what you have then by the advent of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Christ. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt, from off you. Now, they'd been 40 years out of Egypt, hadn't they? But as one brother has well said, it took God only a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. It took him 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Now he has rolled away or separated them from the reproach of Egypt by the circumcision of the heart. So it's also true of the believer. Up to the time of the new birth, justification was theirs. They were in right standing with God, but all the defilement that went with the world was still upon them, and guilt was still upon them. Guilt was covered by the atoning blood, but sin was never removed. Yes? So what do we have in the, in the uh, uh, Greek word aphosine, which is translated uh, sometimes forgive, but usually remission in the New Testament? It means to separate away from. 
The word aphesine means to separate away from. So that uh, the remission of sins is not just God looking down in our vernacular saying, I forgive you, or in our terms, if you would, or our human attitude, I'll forgive it, I forgive it but I won't forget it. It is God separating me thoroughly from all the guilt of sin from the sin itself so that I stand guiltless before God. Remember again, God did not uh, pardon you, he acquitted you. Cannot overemphasize that. He did not pardon you, he acquitted you. And all of the silly little illustrations that we use to talk about a believer being pardoned fall far short of the work, work of God in Christ. As far as God is concerned, you were never guilty. So he is rolled away by the circumcision of the heart, Colossians 2.11, the reproach of Egypt. And Egypt, by the way, unless we lose this, is a figure of what? Hmm? The world, precisely. It's a figure of the world. It is ruled by Satan. Jo uh, what's his name? Uh, back there, Pharaoh. It's a title, of course, not a name. Uh, he is the god of this age and the prince of this world. By the way, just parenthetically, don't confuse those two. Satan is never referred to as the god of this world. He's referred to as the God of this age. He's the prince of this world. He rules the world, and he's worshipped by the age. There's a distinction between the two. Uh, I know it in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, it is translated the God of this world, but the Greek word is not uh, cosmos, it's eon, age. All right, now, as a result of that, some of the benefits that go with this circumcision of the heart, this new birth, Verse 10 and following of chapter 5 of Joshua. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at evening, in the, or the 14th day of the month, I'm sorry, at evening in the plains of Jericho. 14 in the number of in Scripture is the number of uh, salvation. And they did eat of the old grain of the land on the next day after the Passover, unleavened cakes, parched grain in the very same day. And the manna ceased on the next day after they had eaten of the old grain of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. All right, now the old grain of the land has, the, has a view toward the exaltation of Christ. Manna views Christ in his humiliation. You remember that these terms are used of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6. Moses gave you manna in the wilderness, your father's manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. I am that living bread that's come down from heaven. Manna in the Word of God is a figure of two things, of the person of Christ in his incarnation and of financial provision. Paul uses it in that context in his second epistle to the Corinthians. Here we are viewing manna in the, in the uh, uh, sense of the person of the Lord Jesus. You understand, of course, that manna is the revelation of Christ in infancy, so that under the Old Covenant they were living, typically speaking, in uh, uh, the experience of manna. Uh, now, give this some consideration. And I hope I do not stumble anybody in uh, their understanding of what God is bringing us to. I have to say this parenthetically. God is bringing us to this. None of us start out sons. We start out children. And we grow up in the sonship. All right? So whatever level of experience you may be in, don't try to leap over part of it to get someplace where you aren't yet because it causes awesome stumblings and heartaches and miseries and so forth. Just let God raise you up. I have uh, a four-year-old who is continually telling her older brothers and sister that she's a big girl now. She quite obviously is not a big girl now, but she keeps telling them that she's a big girl now and terribly resents being referred to as baby Karen. 
But she's going to have to grow up whether she likes it or not. And attempting to leap over any of those years, well, if she could do that, would put her in a place of adulthood with total immaturity. In other words, not being able to handle the problems that she'd face. We see that then. So God is doing the same thing with his children. He is raising us up so that we learn the lessons that we need to learn as we go, so that when we come to adulthood, our intelligence spiritually is going to be equal to our, um, uh, what's the word, chronology, length of days. Our intelligence will be equal to our length of days. All right. That's what Manna suggests then. When the children of Israel came into the wilderness, God began to give them angels' food from heaven. My, that sounds so marvelous, doesn't it, that we should eat angels' food. But, beloved, listen. Angels are on far lower level than what God has predestined his people to be. So it is infancy that's being viewed there. And they gathered the manna, you'll remember, early every morning. And if they gathered too much and tried to save it for the next day, it bred worms and stank. Now, what's the lesson in that? that God calls for his people to meet him in the morning, and as they meet him in the morning and they draw strength from him and nurturement for him, they have everything they need for the course of the day. The psalmist put it beautifully. All the way over the Old Testament, you'll find this. My prayer shall precede, prevent is the King James word, my prayer shall precede the morning watch. I'm going to meet you before the day gets busy, and I'm going to call upon you then. Now, that sounds very good, doesn't it? Well, I hope it sounds good. I mean, it's Bible. Hmm? But you see, that's how God nurtures us and raises us up. And we begin to meet him on that basis and we draw from him. And if I might draw the words of the Apostle Paul, he that gathered much had nothing over and he that gathered little had no lack. Yes? So if you meet him for an hour and you draw a little from him, uh, then you're going to need a little for that day. And if you meet him for three hours and you draw a lot from him, then you're going to need a lot that day. God's going to see to it that you consume everything in the course of that day that you've gathered that morning. C.T. Studd pointed to, to this. Uh, if you're not familiar with who C.T. Studd is, he was the founder of the World Evangelization Crusade and he's the father-in-law of Norman Grubb. That helps, any. And C.T. Studd pointed out when he was in Africa, he used to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and he would uh, meet with the Lord from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock and anything he needed in the course of that day, he got between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock. And if he was going to have to preach that day and didn't know it, then he got whatever he needed to preach between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock that morning. He may not have known what it was for until he got, uh, got there, but he got it anyhow. You're following then. So he that gathered little had no lack, he that gathered much had nothing over and all of this is the manna experience of the believer. And this is what nurtures me in the Lord, and it is essential to my growth and my understanding of Him. It builds me up in Him as a child. But, beloved, we don't remain with manna. When they crossed the River Jordan, on the next day after they ate of the old corn of the land, now God saw to it that first of all they ate of the old corn of the land, but on the next day after they ate of the old corn of the land, the manna ceased. Now the old corn of the land didn't fall from heaven every morning, did it? Uh, I've got to say this, since I'm here. Let me, I wasn't going to, but I'll digress a moment. Take a little of your time. Go with me to the book of Numbers, please. Chapter 11. All right, now, when, uh, when the man was first given in Exodus chapter 12, uh, not Exodus 12, I'm sorry, in Exodus uh, 18 it would have been, wouldn't it, in that context. When the man was first given then uh, God gave uh, angels food to his people to sustain them in the wilderness because they were complaining against him. And they rejoiced in the manna that they got, and they thought it was a good food from the Lord, quite satisfied with it, and it sustained their life. But now they were not intending to, intended to eat manna for 40 years, were they? They were intended to eat manna for how long? Two years. 
Just two years. Now, I like soda biscuits, but I wouldn't like them for 40 years if that was all I had to eat. And I think it's understandable that because of their attitudes uh, toward the Lord and toward the people of God, toward Moses and God's authority, that their attitude toward God's provision was changed. Now, I want you to see the manna then as a figure of the Lord Jesus in, Ex or in Numbers 11, verse 5 and following. We remember the fish which we did eat uh, in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Now, that's quite a diet, isn't it? And now our soul is dried away, and there's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. You notice the derision in that. And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of delium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it, and the taste of it was the taste of fresh oil. Now, when they first ate it, it tasted like honey. You recall? Now it's the taste of fresh oil. You'll notice they've gotten bored with the manna, and they're trying to adjust the manna to be more palatable. So they're grinding it and making things of it. Again, are you still thinking in terms of the manna being Jesus? Now what happens to the carnal mind when it gets bored with his walk? It begins to change Jesus. The carnal mind is not uh, subject to the law of God, Paul said, neither indeed can be. And so it begins to change the revelation of the Lord Jesus to something that's more palatable, the carnal mind, and when they get all through it still comes out tasting like fresh oil. And oil in the Scripture is a figure of what? Come on. Hmm? The Spirit, precisely. Oil is a figure of the Holy Spirit. So they can do anything with Jesus they want to. He's going to still come out just like the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is tasteless to the, to the flesh. Oil has no taste to the flesh. All right, close parenthesis on that. So the manna then gives a figure of, uh, of the Lord Jesus in um, his humiliation and of the believer in his infancy appropriating the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. Let me give you the references to these, please, and you can search this out on your own. We just read Numbers 11, 9. You might cite that in Exodus chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Then we come to the old corn of the land, and the old corn of the land gives a view of the believer in maturity. The believer as he has come to maturity. Now, what is the distinction between manna in terms of their feeding on it and the old corn of the land? Well, the first thing was the old corn of the land was already there. When God brought them into this land, he said, I'm going to bring you into stores that you haven't reaped. They're already stored up for you, barns that are full, and you had nothing to do with it. The second thing is they didn't have to gather it every morning to have it. It was always available. Always available. May I cite one of my illustrations again, if you'll forgive the repetition. If my wife and I go somewhere together in the car, we may talk for an hour as we start this trip <clears throat> and then stop talking, and she doesn't sign off with some such term like, in my husband's name, amen. She just quits talking. And later on down the road, 45 minutes or an hour or more later, if she wants to start talking again, she doesn't start out once more, oh, thou august husband who sits in the big easy chair in the living room, who provides all my meals and so forth, she just starts talking. There is no need for her to re-enter my presence because she was never out of my presence. Now, when we feed on the Lord Jesus' manna, we talk about going before the Lord. Well, now, where's he been all this time? Now, collectively, as an assembly of God's people, that is a very important truth, but it addresses quite a different relationship. Individually speaking, the believer is in one union with Christ, and the doors of communion are always open to him, and it can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help early every morning. 
Hmm? Time of need. Time of need. Whenever you need him. That's when he's available. And I begin to learn something about the presence of the Lord Jesus so that a communion is carried on which is continual and unbroken. But I do not learn to the value of that continual and unbroken communion until, first of all, I learn the Lord. And if I haven't learned the Lord, then I, then I need to come before him just like he was manna. And as I learn him, and I have a fellowship with him, and a communion with him, and an unbroken relationship with him, then I begin to experience what it is. As a result of that, I begin to experience what it is to feed on him as the old corn of the land. It is always available. Are you following what we're saying? So we move from manna then to the old corn, which belongs to the new birth, belongs to sonship. But I'm not going to be able to walk as a son until I first of all learn how to be a child. You don't learn to walk or learn, don't learn to run until you first learn to walk. So it is a progressive experience. All right, now see one more result in chapter 5 of Joshua of this resurrection life which was not experienced prior to this time. Let me ask you parenthetically, was the Lord with the children of Israel as they sojourned in the wilderness? Well, you all don't trust me, I can tell. You think I'm laying for you or something? That was a very simple question and you're all afraid to answer it. I have sown some awful thing upon you, I can see. Yes, obviously the Lord was with him. What did God say to Moses? He said, I'm going to send my angel before you. He said, don't offend him because my name is in him. God was ever present in the glory cloud at the tabernacle, wasn't he? And dealing with the needs of the children of Israel consistently. And God was not meeting them in his blessings because they were an upright people or because they were an obedient people or any other such like thing. He fed them with manna whether they were rebellious or not. He nurtured them with water whether they were obedient or not. God dealt with them in kindness because they were his people, not because they deserved it, but because they were his people. So he was ever present with them. But they never met him personally. They never knew him personally. And God now has brought a people into a relationship with him which is personal, a personal acquaintance with him. And we have this from verse 13 then. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? In other words, whose side are you on? And he said unto them, Nay, but as captain of the hosts of the Lord am I now come. In other words, I haven't come to take sides, I've come to take over. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto, thy, unto his servant? Obviously, the captain of the host of the Lord here is the Lord Jesus. It is what is referred to in theological terms as a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in a human form prior to the incarnation. An appearance of Christ in a human form prior to the incarnation. You'll also find the terms theophany and angelophany and so forth through the scripture. They are appearances of God or of angels or of Christ in human form prior to the incarnation. So the captain of the host of the Lord here views the Lord Jesus in his glorified, exalted position as Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, a passage with which doubtless you are very familiar. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. By the way, just parenthetically, uh, the word A there in Philippians 2 is uh, an unfortunate oversight. There are no indefinite articles in the Greek New Testament. Matter of fact, there's no indefinite article in the Greek language. There is either no article or there is the definite article. When there is no article, the emphasis is upon nature. When there is an article, the emphasis is on person or thing. And in this case, the article appears. He has given him the name which is above every name. 
That is the new name which Jesus now possesses. It is the name of his authority. As we've mentioned to you in a previous section of this course, God is accustomed to giving new names to people whom he brings into exalted positions. For example, he gave a new name to Joseph when he was placed as vice-regent over Egypt. He gave a new name to Abram when he made covenant with him. He gave a new name to Jacob when he had subdued Jacob and made him prince with God, and on you can go with it. When Solomon was born, David called him Solomon, but God called him Yadidiah, beloved of the Lord. He is accustomed to giving new names to those with whom he comes into special or unique or covenant relationship. And the same is true of the Lord Jesus. He has given him the new name, and he is viewed here in that position as the captain of the hosts of the Lord. God has highly exalted him and made him Lord. Same um, emphasis is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. So now we come into a personal relationship. Now, I want to give you one other sidelight to this, if I may. If I could take you to the book of Judges, the book of Judges, and uh, chapter 2 and verse 6 and following, 6 through 10. Now, before I read these passages, just to uh, remind you that the book of Deuteronomy was written, and the word Deuteronomy is deutonamos, it is the second law, it was written to give the law to the new generation that was about to possess the land. And the promises in Deuteronomy are very beautiful. Deuteronomy is a marvelously spiritual book, a very spiritual book. And Deuteronomy describes the character of the land they were about to go into. It refers to that land as the rest of God, a land that flows with milk and honey, that drinks in the water of the rain of heaven. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it, and on you can go with it. Marvelously, it describes in chapter 11 the experience of the believer in his walk in the Lord Jesus. And so as the law was given to this new generation, the revelation of God was given to them, and now we have a generation who are going to know the Lord and come into the land knowing the Lord. Now, verse 6, chapter 2, Judges. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man to his inheritance to possess the land. Do you see the view toward the believer in sonship there? He is going out now to possess the land, the inheritance that's been his, the inheritance which had been withheld from him uh, as he was a servant. We cited this in our last class, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. The heir, uh, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. So now the heir is no longer a child. He is in a figure now, a son. He is coming into the inheritance. Remember what we're talking about in Joshua and Judges are all figures of what is yet to come. Now verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and the days of the, uh, they served the Lord all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, died being 110 years old. Now, verse 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, all these that saw the great works of the Lord and that served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. And there arose another generation after them who knew not the Lord neither yet the works which he had done for Israel. And you see the emphasis then of the book of Joshua? Here is a generation that knows the Lord. Do you see the figure? God has brought us into sonship because the son knows the father. The child does not know the father. He thinks he does, but he doesn't. The son knows the father. And the whole purpose of raising a child is to teach him the mind of the father so that he can do the works of the father without the father having to tell him. Now, we, don't, we have not time to go on with the analogy that follows with the new generation that arose that knew not the Lord, but if you want to apply this, I'll just give you this for your own pursuit in the future. 
If you want to apply this to the experience of the church of the Lord Jesus, uh, the church of the Lord Jesus served the Lord all the days of the Lord Jesus, and all the days, that's a misnomer, but I'm trying to illustrate something. The church was not born, of course, till after Jesus was ascended. But it served the Lord all the days of the apostles, and served the Lord all the, day, all the days of the elders that outlived the apostles, and then there arose a new generation that knew not the Lord, and we entered into what we know today as the Dark Ages. You see how that follows? And Judges gives to us a remarkable picture of the church in, the, in its spiritual decay. It's still a church, still the people of God, but in a gross state of spiritual decay. And when you come to the book of Ruth, and the continuity of the scripture is marvelous, when you come to the book of Ruth then, God begins to throw out handfuls on purpose. Do you follow that? Handfuls on purpose. A revival here, a restoration there, a time of refreshing there, so he begins to draw his people back into a right relationship with him. The church has, in other words, been up to this present day, or up to perhaps about the turn of the century, if you would, in the Babylonian captivity. And now God is restoring the church from its Babylonian captivity to the land, and he's seeing that temple built again. All right, do you have any questions about the analogy that we have then in Joshua? Yes, ma'am. One question that comes to mind is the people were told to teach these things to their children. Yeah. How can a generation come up if they were doing They weren't doing it. They weren't doing that. They were a people who knew the Lord, and they were enjoying the Lord, but they were not teaching those truths to their children, and that's how the new generation came up. In the Deuteronomy, one of the requirements of Deuteronomy was, you shall teach these commandments to your children. You shall speak of them in your down-sitting, in your uprising, when you walk in the way, when you rise in the morning, when you go to bed at night. Everything you do ought to be accompanied with some ministry of the Word of God to your children. They obviously did not do that. And as a result of that, there was a new generation who knew not the Lord. All of these knew the works of the Lord, but the new generation didn't know the works of the Lord. You can see this. You, I'm going to blame this on you now. That this digression. You can see this, however, in the moral decay of Israel, in that in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, for example, there was a certain group who came down in the days of the, the decay of Israel and the Babylonians were about to take them over. There was a certain group that came down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and Jeremiah's prophecy says they had cut themselves after their manner. Now, they were coming down to worship the Lord and to call on the Lord to deliver their nation from the enemy that was coming against them, and in order to show their devotion, they had cut themselves and were bleeding. What does the law of God say about that? Thou shalt make no cuttings in your flesh of any sort for any reason. Well, they obviously didn't know that. Well, circumcision was the seal of the covenant. That was quite a different thing. Uh, circumcision, uh, the cuttings in the flesh that God speaks of was the, was the pagan practice of lacerating one's arms and face and neck and back and so forth for the purpose of, uh, what's the word I want? Self-flagellation. There's another word there I want to. Uh, ah, come on. Uh, well, you know, I, I can't draw the word back on one anyhow. Uh, it's self-abasement anyway. Um, oh. Uh, I, I've got, all I've got to my head is the word vicarious, and that's not what I want. It's not substitutionary at all. In any case, it's self-affliction. It's personal affliction uh, to uh, uh, suffer, you know, to get some favor with God. Oh, boy. Mm. One word will say it. Anyhow, uh, this, is, uh, this is the kind of thing that's carried on in pagan practices around the world, and God said, you won't do it. But they did it. Hmm? Luther did it. Yes, Luther did it. That's right. Uh, the prophet of God put it very beautifully. He said, shall I give this, the, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? But attempting to do that, indeed, they were. 
so the thing I want to point out is they, they were totally ignorant of the revelation of God, and as they were ignorant of the revelation of God, they began to pursue things totally inconsistent with the revelation of God, and at the same time feeling that they were worshiping the Lord. You've got the same thing in the days of Hezekiah. When Hezekiah came to the throne, you remember, he brought great revival in Israel. He tore down the altar of Baal and of Ashtaroth that was in the land. He uh, broke them in pieces and burned them with fire. He burned the uh, brazen serpent that Moses had set up in the wilderness. They'd been worshiping that thing. Offering incense to it. There's a good traditional illustration for you. Offering incense to the brazen serpent. And, and Hezekiah comes on the throne. He grinds it into powder. And the children of Israel are, have lost all these things that they uh, were using as uh, fetishes and, and uh, security blankets, if you would. And he turned them again to Jehovah worship in its purity. And then the Assyrians come down and are ready to attack the land. And they cry out, making a long story short, to those that are on the wall, are you going to trust in Jehovah God? Is it not his altars Hezekiah has thrown down? Now, what does that tell us? That they had so incorporated Ashtaroth and Baal with the worship of Jehovah that the pagans on the outside couldn't tell the difference. They didn't know where one let off and the other one started. Did you know, beloved, I'm preaching now, will you all forgive this? Did you know that the world has the same problem with the church? They can't tell where the revelation of God leaves off and the world begins. We have so incorporated the traditions of paganism into the church of the Lord Jesus, both in its... Yes, but they did not rever the word of God. That was not paramount to them. They knew the Lord, but the word of God was not revered to such an extent that it was important enough to transfer to their children. And that whatever is important to us, we're going to convey that standard of importance to our children. They were enjoying the blessing of God. Uh, how much am I allowed to meddle with? Huh? I'm very deeply concerned with this uh, in the uh, so-called charismatic movement. I just like that terminology, but so people know what you're talking about, you know, you almost have to use it. Uh, the charismatic movement is beginning to produce an atmosphere of, uh, of ecstasy and the supernatural. So that people are being taken with the supernatural and what is ecstatic, they are getting hung on that, if you would. And as a result of that, there, there is a losing sight of the foundational um, necessity of the Word of God. And anything you experience has to be judged on the basis of what the Word of God says. So we are producing in our children, that we is an editorial we, you know, it covers a very broad uh, scope, but we are producing in our children then a craving for the demonstration of the works of God without at the same time an understanding of the Word of God. Now that's what you had in them. They saw the works of the Lord, and that was mentioned just a moment, arose a new generation, and all this generation, and saw the works of God in the wilderness, and they could speak of the works of God but they did not testify to their children the word of God. That's evident in the fact that much many generations later on, they could still talk about the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. They had that well in their mind because their generations had passed that information on the works of God. And so we're spending our time talking about the works of God without at the same time conveying to our children the word of God. And if I may say so, there are some to the flesh again, you know, here's what we do with the Lord Jesus, grind him in a mortar with a pestle and mix a little bit of fresh, a uh, little bit of... Uh, uh, spice with him and he comes out tasting like fresh oil uh, we have omitted uh, a concentration on the, the sections of the word of God that deal with the doctrinal premises which are necessary to our walk and we have rather concentrated on such things as um, uh, come on Mark uh, 11 quote it for me uh, saints uh, um, oh my have the faith of God Yeah, have the faith of God for I say unto you, if any man will say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart that whatsoever those uh, things he'll say will come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now that's the kind of thing we've come to concentrate on. 
By his stripes we are healed, and so we ought to see all these people being healed, and etc. This is the kind of thing we've concentrated on, and may I suggest to you, beloved, that God is beginning to turn that water off. Because there is such a take-up with that that there is a neglect of such things as therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is remarkable the insecurity that is found in believers whose experience is altogether around the works of God rather than around the Word of God. And it's a disturbing thing. And so we will produce a generation that has been told what God did but has absolutely no understanding about why God did it or what principles God is intending to work. And that's why we have such theologies today. And if I step on one of your favorite doctrines, you forgive me. But step I shall. Hmm? Love me anyhow. Um, there, are, there are therefore such uh, philosophies arising today that every believer ought to be healed. Every believer ought to be financially prosperous. Every believer not, should not have problems. The only kind of problems that any believer ought to have is persecution from those who are without. out. That's the only, the only uh, um, difficulty according to that philosophy, that any believer ought to encounter. Absolute poppycock. <laughs> if, the, if the believers are not open to the chastening of the Lord for under whatever circumstances he wants to chasten, then God is not the sovereign God that he is. God can do what he wants, when he wants, whatever way he wants, and he does not need to answer to me. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, who hath been his counselor? He does not stop and ask me if it's all right or if it fits into my theology. And the thing which Jesus did when he appeared on the scene the first time you'll remember is those things which were paradoxical. We talked about this one morning, I think. Those things which were paradoxical to the understanding of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the word down pat, didn't they? But they didn't understand a thing in the world about why God said what he said. They could recount the history of Israel with uh, uh, great uh, understanding but they were totally lost uh, as to the vision that God was uh, giving them concerning the Messiah and the ministry of Messiah. So <clears throat> now, here we sit on the verge. I'm not an alarmist. just going to mention this. Here we sit on the verge of falling into the same trap that they fell into in the day of the judges, days of the judges, so that you find a remnant here and a remnant there that know the Lord. And the rest of them know about God and know what God is doing. I'm talking about believers, you understand know about God and know about what God is doing and they hear about these uh, uh, hundreds that got healed over here or, or the thousands that got baptized with the Spirit over there and etc. But uh, understanding the Word of the Lord is quite another matter. And that's what's brought on such spiritual emaciation in the people of God. Well, that was a... Uh, anemia. Um, uh, shrunken cheeks and twisted bones and what have you in the church. Going on like we did right now, I think one thing we need to really make clear, though, that we still need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as far as the baptism of the Holy Spirit is still necessary in our lives, but it's reflecting on Jesus Christ as our source and our strength rather than the gifts of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Those are just manifestations mm -hmm. that we get after we walk and completely dying Yes, that's the word which Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, the manifestations of the Spirit. We call them the gifts of the Spirit, but they are in fact the manifestations of the Spirit. But it's still important what I'm saying. Yes, they are important. One precipitates the other. When I have an understanding of a right foundation, that's why Paul says, I've laid a foundation, others build their own, but take heed how you build. So you, first you get the foundation set, and then you build. 
And what God is doing right now, in fact, is going back and putting foundations under churches that never had them. Uh, somebody asked me one time, and maybe I mentioned this to you up in a northern town in, here in Texas, uh, why do we need apostles today if churches are already established in this country? Well, that's the problem. Churches have been established without foundations. And God is going back and putting foundations under churches that never had them. And the, if the foundation is not right, is not secure, then the structure is uh, precarious at best. It may be built out of right things, but if it is not built on a right foundation, then it is subject to falling. For example, if you find a believer who is moving in the works of the Spirit, mar God is marvelously blessing him, and then God begins to want to chasten him and teach him something of walking with him by faith and not by sight, because many of us are taught to walk by, by say that word again, sight, uh, as long as we see God moving and see God healing and see God blessing, everything is going all right. When the children of Israel were just that way, when everything was going all right for them in the wilderness, they were fine. This is a wonderful land and hallelujah and we're on our way to Canaan and bless God, but just let the drought come. Did you bring us out in this land to die where there are no graves in Egypt that we should be falling at the hands of this desert and etc. and on they go. Same people next day. Well, what happened? They didn't see it anymore. And now, beloved, this, I'm not speaking of something uh, hypothetical or theoretical. I'm talking about something that's observed today. And when the people of God see God moving, then they can walk fine. It is an evidence of childhood. So that when God shuts that off and wants them to begin to understand that the faithfulness of God never changes, though the circumstances might be altogether adverse, then all of a sudden rebellion comes. Now, what's the problem? The foundation is not secure. And if you pull everything that a man is, is uh, trusting in away from him, if he doesn't understand the truths of justification and the salvation of God as a foundation for his experience, he's going to go under. In the words of the psalmist, is it Psalm 4? I believe it is. If the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And that's what Satan really attacks, the foundation. And he is very subtle. And so he takes our attention away from the foundation to other very good things i.e., the move of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, until all of a sudden I'm so taken up with what God has done, I have forgotten the foundation as the basis upon which He is doing it. And God works all that He's working on the basis of the righteousness of God imputed to me, not on the basis of my good performance. But if I am taken up with what God is doing, then I begin to think in terms of my performance. And if it doesn't work right, then I begin to introspect and find out what I've done wrong, that God should have stopped this, and it jolly well may be I haven't done anything wrong. It may be that I've done everything so right that I have begun to concentrate on how right I'm doing things, and as a result of that, God's going to rip the whole thing away from me so I can learn the source of what is happening. And I'll tell you, beloved, God is a whole lot more interested in His worker than He is in His work. His work is going to go on. Oh, you be very sure of that. His work will go on. But his worker, he's going to concentrate on. And if it means sticking him away on the backside of the desert for 40 years to learn the lessons of the knowledge of God, he'll do exactly that. And in the meantime, his work will not suffer. Not one iota. Well, where was I when I got on that? Oh, yes, I was going to illustrate then this thing of the tent and the tabernacle. Or the tabernacle and the temple, if you would. As you follow the history, and we're not, we'll not go back and deal with this in specifics, I simply want to draw the illustration, and you can then pursue it yourself, trusting that you will. When they came out and camped in the land at the outset, the tabernacle gave a view of a temporary dwelling, and it, and it suggests our body in which we presently live, and at the same time, the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, remember I said before that types have several different views. 
The tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness gives a view of John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It also views the experience of the church in Acts chapter 2, when the church became the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. This is emphasized in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and following. We know that the earthly house of this tabernacle will be dissolved. We have a building of God eternal in the heavens, not made with hands. So the tabernacle of Moses views then the physical body, whether it be the Lord Jesus, whether it be the church, or whether it be Israel, it is the physical manifestation of God in the earth. So the word became flesh and tabernacle literally among us. If you have dwelt among us, it's an unfortunate translation. It is tabernacled among us because Christ is the fulfilling of the figures of that tabernacle. I mentioned to you in an earlier class here when we were talking about the covenant, might just stick this in right here. Uh, we're past our break time. I'm sorry, somebody was not uh, warning me. Let me just say this quickly and I'll give you a break. <clears throat> um, we, no we noted to you that the tabernacle of Moses had a view toward a physical body, and very quickly I'll put this up now. The tabernacle being in three parts, the sanctuary in the center, which was divided in two parts, you remember, by veils. The Hebrew word used uh, to uh, speak of the sides of the two sides eastward of the outer hanging is the Hebrew word for shoulder, both cases. The Hebrew word translated side with reference to the 20 boards of the north side northward and the 20 boards of the south side southward is the Hebrew word also legitimately translated rib and the Hebrew word translated side with regard to the three boards of the one side of the west side westward and the three boards of the other side of the west side westward. And it's interesting that the west side is seen in two parts, three boards on one part, three boards on the other part. And the Hebrew word translated side here is the word for thigh. So we have two thighs, rib cage, and two shoulders, which quite obviously gives to us the body of a man, doesn't it? And the uh, white uh, hanging, the cord of the hanging, five cubits high, used the robe of righteousness, or the garment of righteousness. They were given on the white robes, which are the righteousness of the saints. So the white robe is the righteousness first of Christ, then of Israel, then of the body of the Lord Jesus, his church. Are you following me now? Now the head is never seen. The head of the woman is the man. The head of the man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. The head is always in the heavens. When Christ was here, his head, God, was in the heavens. Now the church is here, but its head, Christ, is in the heavens. So the head is never seen, never manifest in the earth. The body is manifest in the earth. Do you follow that then? So the tabernacle gave a view of the manifestation of God in the earth through his people, whoever they were. Now when they start out then at Gilgal, there are senses in which it can illustrate the church and at the same time, illustrating Israel. If we look at it then, from the development of God's uh, revelation, I want you to see the tabernacle at Gilgal as Israel. And Israel, you'll remember, was finally uh, forsaken by the Lord because Israel forsook the Lord. And they are put away as an adulterous wife, God said. Now, you'll observe what happens. When uh, David comes to the throne, well, there's so much I'd like to say at this point. When David comes to the throne, David, you'll recall, brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which had been in the captivity of the Philistines for so long, viewing, I think, a beautiful picture of the status of the church uh, for so long a period. He brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord not back to the tabernacle, which uh, at that time was in Gibeah, you'll recall, or Gibeon, I'm sorry, but rather he brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord back to where? To Zion. Now, there was no tent in Zion. So David put up a tent in Zion and he put the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in the tent which he had set up on Mount Zion. Now, you don't see any authorization for that in the Scripture, do you? 
Do you know why? Because this tent in Mount Zion is a figure of the church of the Lord Jesus. Here is Israel forsaken in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. The glory of God is gone. The Ark was the place of the glory, the place of the abiding of God. And that has come now to the tent which David had set up. And with no authorization in the Scripture, it beautifully speaks to the church, which was a mystery, Paul said, hid in age past times, but is now revealed by his apostles and prophets. Yes? Now look with me in Acts 15 very quickly. By the way, Brother uh, Jack, I don't know if this has been your experience in the past or not, but having come from a very strong dispensational background, which I am not deriding at this point, I want to I hasten to, uh, to explain. This verse in Acts 15, verse uh, 14 and following, was always brought to me as a picture, or as a prophecy, I should say, as a prophecy of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. And I could never somehow or another fit that into my outline properly, but I was taught that by good men, I might add, very good men. And so I just received it. Look with me, please, verse 14 and following of Acts 15. Simeon hath declared how God did first visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. Is that the church? Absolutely. And to this agree the words of the prophets. Now, what, is the, what are the words of the prophets agreeing to? That God is visiting the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 11, isn't it? Blindness and parts happened unto Israel. There's the tabernacle. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written. After this, I will return and build the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and will build again its ruins and set it up. Well, what tabernacle of David are we talking about? The tent that he set on Mount Zion tabernacle is a tent that he set up on Mount Zion which was not authorized by the law but which was something that God has brought in to indicate that Israel the nation was going to be set aside and that God was going to draw out a new people and bring these new people into the kingdom of God and this new people are the Gentiles in that represented in that tent that unauthorized tent on Mount Zion and you'll notice there's no description of the tent it's just an old tent that's kind of the way Gentiles are you know they're not really worth describing when you boil it down. So the reference in chapter 15 and verse 16 is to the church of the Lord Jesus, which was figured in David's tent, which was inhabited only by the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which is the place of the glory of God. It's the place where the law was, and the mercy seat over it, and the glory over the law, and the law is now in our hearts. Yes, isn't that a part of the new covenant? I will write my laws in their hearts, in their minds will I implant them, God said, and they shall say no more to any man know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least even unto the greatest. So then the, the tent which David set up views this work in the church which he's presently doing that brings us into sonship before God on Mount Zion. And Zion, by the way, is the place of authority. The word Zion means fortress. It is the place of authority. It speaks to the exalted Christ. He is brought from Gibeon to Zion. And he is brought that way through uh, this Philistine route. And we don't have time to address that, but that's an interesting pursuit in itself. I have found great interest in uh, following the travels of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Great interest in it. All right, now, pursuing this yet a little farther, <clears throat> even though we're about to run out of chalkboard room, after the tent in Mount Zion, David determines that he wants to build a house uh, for the Lord, doesn't he? But God does not permit David to build a house for the Lord. Why? He is a man of blood. Now, how does that beautifully figure the Lord Jesus? When Jesus came the first time, he came a man of blood, didn't he? To provide sacrifice, to make expiation for all sin. 
But as he is exalted at the right hand of the Father, he never dies again. To him that look for him shall he appear the second time apart from a sin offering unto salvation. So David was not permitted to build the temple. That is, the building finally put together in a glorious fashion. But rather he said, your son is going to do that. Now, very quickly, King Saul gives to us a picture of the law. And if you'll follow Saul's experience, he is one very much under law, legalistic in his attitude. David gives to us a picture of the grace of God. See this beautifully in Mephibosheth. And Solomon gives to us a picture of the reigning Christ. That reign encompasses a number of things, but we're going to address only one part of it right now. Solomon gives to us a picture of the reigning Christ. And Solomon was the one who was privileged to put the temple together. Now, David gathered material for the temple, yes? He cut cedars from Lebanon, you remember? He gathered rocks, stones, huge stones for the temple, but he was not permitted to put it together. Now, is not God right now gathering material for that temple? Hmm? We also are living stones being built together in a holy temple in the Lord. But Solomon, when he came on the throne, he put the temple together. And Solomon would view for us then the returning glorified Christ with a completed body of Christ, build it together and holy temple in the Lord. So you go from that point then to the, to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. You've gone through three great works of God. The dealing with Israel, the dealing with the Gentiles and calling out a people for his name, and finally the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. By the way, a lot uh, could be said about that temple. It's a beautiful illustration itself, how that every stone was made ready before it was brought hither. No sound of hammer or of any tool at the building site because every stone was made ready before it was brought hither. Do you know, God's making you ready right now, isn't he? Yes, that's right. Amen. He's hewing on you, carving on you, uh, chipping off all of the unfortunate portions, and when he gets through with you, beloved, be guaranteed, you will fit. God isn't going to lose one stone. You know, I don't know if you've done any rock work or not, but quite frequently, you can hit one with a hammer and it'll break in the wrong place and you throw it away and you get another one. God never has that problem. The reason that happens is because there's a flaw in the rock. Uh, but that's what God is looking after. You see, if there's a flaw in our rock, God is going to break us in the flaw and there'll still be a piece of rock that's valuable left. God isn't going to lose anything he started with at all. If he wants to refine gold, he doesn't put wood in the fire, he puts gold in the fire. So if you're in the fire, it's because God sees gold. And God never wastes his time. Okay, any questions about this? That was kind of a hasty run, beloved, but uh, I wanted to get that illustration to you. Now, you have another analogy here that needs to be beautifully noted, and that is at the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, he sent the Holy Spirit uh, to uh, baptize the believers into one body, and how many were ministering then in the temple when the Holy Spirit came? Acts 2? Oh, oh. Well, it's noted in Acts 1, but uh, of course they were present there in Acts 2. 120. Yes, yes. 120. Well, you remember offhand how many priests there were ministering in the temple of Solomon when the glory of God filled it? You guessed it. 120. That's not a, that's not a uh, what do you say, how do you say, accident? Coincident. Yeah, well, coincident. When, the, uh, when Moses was on the mountain, he came down. You know, so many died, and then so many lived at the yeah. temple. Was that 120? When Moses, no, that was 3,000. When Moses came down from the mount, 3,000 died in judgment. That was the giving of the law. 3,000 died in judgment. At the advent of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 got saved. The obvious question is, which would you rather live under? Lord grace, you know. There are some, uh, many such like analogies that you can follow in the experience of Moses and the experience of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the law kills. 
but the Spirit gives life. Now, lovely. 3,000 died under the law. 3,000 got saved. The Spirit came. Okay. Now, what I'm trying to point out in the midst of all of this then is that God is bringing us into a relationship which the Old Covenant believers could never experience. As long as the tabernacle and the ark were at Gibeon, they could not move to the place of authority in Mount Zion. But it had to first of all be taken into captivity, into the place of death. And as it came out of captivity, then it was given a new place. It speaks to us of the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ, among other things. The relationship or experience, I should say, of the church is beautifully testified in that experience. But it comes back then to inhabit and tent, which was set up on Mount Zion, the tabernacle of David, uh, which God is building again. It will go then finally to that glorified body. The glory of God will fill that glorified body. When uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, the prophecies which are mentioned there, which shall be very beautifully fulfilled. Uh, to whom coming as unto a living stone, that is the Lord Jesus, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also are living stones, builded together in holy temple in the Lord. Um, the word stone in 1 Peter chapter 2 is the word lithos. There are three words in the New Testament that are translated stone or rock. Uh, the word petra, this is the word which is used of the Lord Jesus. Upon this rock I will build my church. The word petros, the word which is used of Peter. The word petros means a pebble. The word petra means a boulder. And then the word lithos, which means a hewn stone or one that is shaped for a purpose. We get a word lithograph from it, quite obviously. So what is he saying of the Lord Jesus? That he is a lithos. He is a hewn stone. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Yes? And now we also, he says, are lithos, living stones. We are also being shaped for a purpose or carved out. And when God is through carving, we'll take our place. Well, take a break, beloved. Uh, Galatians 4, 1 and following. I may just incorporate that quiz with, uh, with a quiz on sonship and... Uh, then you'll have the questions. Anyhow, my primary concern in giving you those is so you'll have an outline for study. Okay, we saw in our last class in Galatians 4.1 the distinction between the word child here and the word we were discussing earlier in John 1.12. Translated child there, the word is, that is in 1.12, technon, here it is napios. The word child in John 1.12 implies birth. The word child here implies minor or it's a judicial word. One who is not permitted to speak is the way you would translate it if you wanted to be specific or technical about it. One who is not permitted to speak. So he says in 4.1, Now I say the heir, as long as he is a child, an apios, one who is not permitted to speak, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. So the heirs, under the old covenant, though they were heirs of the same thing to which we are heirs, their heirship was held aside until such time as sonship could come. And sonship began then, verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, when the time to make sons was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus had to come under all of the systems of the law and had to fulfill everything that the law required. As we indicated to you, I think last week this is remarkably illustrated in John 10. Jesus said the true shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd of the sheep, comes through the door of the sheepfold. The door of the sheepfold is not Jesus. Jesus is the door of the sheep. He is not the door of the sheepfold. The door of the sheepfold is the Levitical law through which Messiah must enter 
and fulfill all of the requirements of the law and the prophets in order to be that legitimate good shepherd, that real, genuine good shepherd. So he is made under the law to redeem them that are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons, or more literally, the adult son placing. The word is the adult son placing. So we have been placed as adult sons in the body of Christ, and that is a positional thing. And now God is raising us up from born children into sonship. Now you have to think of this in terms of oriental thinking. Orientals do not call their children automatically sons. They do not refer to them as sons until they have come to a point of responsibility. The Greek word to describe this is the word weos, and the uh, um, Hebrew word is the word bar. Now this is in contrast to the word technon and the word ben. You're familiar with both of these words, I'm sure. I don't know whether you ever stop to make the distinction between them. These show up because of the transliteration in the scriptures, so we become familiar with those, but these do not show up so freely. And unfortunately, they are too often wrongly translated. The word technon speaks to the child, and so the Hebrew word ben. So the word huios speaks to sonship, and the Hebrew word bar. For example, when uh, Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, you remember, he was first called Benoni. He was called by his mother Benoni which means son of my sorrow. Marvelous picture of the Lord Jesus you have here. But mother died, Israel put away. You following me? Mother died and Israel is put away in a figure. And then the father changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. But more literally, it is child of sorrow. Does that remind you of a passage? Isaiah 53? And, and child of my right hand. Ben-Jamun. Now, in the word bar, you have that in illustrated in the New Testament, Jesus referring to Peter. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of the dove, literally. Son of the dove. And the emphasis there is very beautiful. It is the son who receives revelation from God, not the child. It is the son who is led by the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. And the word, the name Jonah, which of course means dove, as we've indicated, would imply a revelation from the Spirit. Son of the Spirit, if you would. The dove is a figure in the Scripture of the Spirit, is he not? So he is saying he is a son of the Spirit, or he is seen then in a very beautiful shadow of the Son of God who is moving by the Spirit of God. The, he has received the Spirit of adoption, in other words. Now you have that in verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 4. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, bar Jonah, crying, Abba, Father, or in sidewalk English, Daddy, Father. Now, very quickly again, to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, the Hebrew word for father, Ab, can be translated legitimately father, inventor, and source. Father, inventor, or source. And all of these are intended to be a description of what God is in his relationship to the believer. He is first, of course, our Father. Then he is inventor. That is, whatever you need, he'll think of something. And he is further source. That is, he is the fountain of everything that the believer has or ever will need. 
Now, don't you think it's significant that the apostle, when he speaks in verse 6, did not just say, he sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Father. He could have said that. So why does he include the Aramaic term, which is the derivative of the Hebrew term, coupled with the Greek term in order to express that? Because the Aramaic word will say something that the Greek term cannot say. The Greek term, and Greek is a scientific language, not a romantic language. Hebrew is a romantic language. It is a poetic language. And in the scientific language, it gives you facts, but it gives you them, those facts in a very sterile way. But the Hebrew language can give it to you in a very poetic way. Uh, the Hebrew language is not intended to be a sci uh, scientific. It is descriptive in its character. So that he puts in then a Hebrew term in order to express the relationship which the believer has with the father because he is now adopted as a son. He is my father. He is my inventor. He is my source. Do you follow with that then? So then verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. Now you had that back in verse 1, you remember. He differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. But now by the adoption of sons, we are no longer a servant, but now we're a son, and if we're a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, go with me please to 2 Corinthians, Second Epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, and we'll look quickly at chapter 1 and verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God. How? By us. The Father is glorified in the Son. Is that not what the Lord Jesus has declared? The Father is glorified in the Son. All right, now we're the sons, so how is the Father glorified? In us as sons. Verse 21. 2 Corinthians 1.21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us, and the Amplified uh, gives a little better uh, well, amplification, if you would, of this, has anointed us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is God, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a witness upon my soul that to spare you I came not unto you, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. He has given us then the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, with that thought in mind, go with me to Ephesians, please. And we'll look at chapter 1 there also and I believe verse 13 and following. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Now I'm emphasizing the word earnest. He has sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 1, 22. Now verse 13, chapter 1 of Ephesians. In whom all ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So he, he, that is the Spirit, is the earnest of our inheritance, and he has anointed us with the uh, earnest of the Spirit, the earnest which the Spirit gives according to, to Corinthians. Now, I want to point out the usage of the term earnest, the earnest of our inheritance. Perhaps... Uh, I ought to read 2 Corinthians 5 also, 5.5. 5. I'll just quickly read that. Uh, now he that hath wrought for us this very same thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. So now three occasions you have that expression, the earnest of the Spirit, or the earnest of our inheritance. Now, what does it mean by the earnest of our inheritance? I said all that to say this. Uh, I should have warned you I was going to sharpshoot you before you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a little better. 
See, we think of a term uh, in terms of the word earnest as a down payment, and I used to preach it that way, as a matter of fact, that God has given us a down payment, etc. But the, the difference between a down payment and earnest is that if you give a down payment without an earnest, in some contracts you can get it back. But if you get an earnest on a piece of property, you'll never get it back if you back out of the deal. Now, what God is declaring in the earnest is, hence the word guarantee, is that he's going to finish the deal. Now, he has not given us all of our inheritance. He's given us an earnest of our inheritance. And the earnest of the inheritance is the proof that the rest of it is coming, and it is what he has committed into our hands so that we can learn to be sons. So we, we start out as a child, we are growing to sons, and we are learning to grow with what he's committed into our hands. He's given us something to practice with, if you would. He's given us the earnest with which to practice. Now, there's a beautiful illustration of this in Matthew 25, the parable of the what? Don't say virgins. What? There's another parable in that chapter too. You know. May I meddle a minute? It's of interest to me, you know, when you talk about the parable of Matthew 25. First thing pops in everybody's mind is the parable of ten virgins. So much preaching goes on about the parable of ten virgins. There's also a parable there about talents. You remember that one? And it's a parable of talents given one to one man, two to another man, and five to another man. And those talents were committed to them so that they could go out and deal with them for the sake of the master of the household. Now, these were servants. They were not sons. And they were intended by that to learn something of how to deal with the wealth of the household for the sake of the master of the house. In the words of Proverbs, he that carefully brings up his servant from a child shall have him become his son at length. If a man didn't have a son, had a servant in the house, then he would train that servant and bring him into a sonship relationship in due course if he never had a child. That's why, for example, Abraham complained to the Lord, didn't he? He said, now, you're talking about my uh, seed inheriting this land and I have no children and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. That was his head servant. That's the one he sent you, remember, to get a bride for Isaac. He would have become his son, the heir of his house. So these servants have committed to them this responsibility, and they are to do something with it. Now, do you observe? He didn't tell them what to do with it. He said, here's a talent, here's two talents, here's five talents. Go do something with it. He didn't care what he did with it, just as long as they did something with it. May I point something out to you? That the earnest of the inheritance which God has give to, given to us, which we've already seen in first, Second Corinthians 1, is the anointing of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You following with me now? And as he gives those ministries to us, then we use those ministries to mature. We function in the tools that are given to us. If I want to teach my child to be a carpenter, I'll give him a hammer. If you want to teach him to be a basketball player, then put a basketball in his hands from the time he's able to walk. And he'll have an awful time with that basketball, won't he? For the first several years. But he ultimately will become so at home with that basketball that it will become a part of him and he will act out of what he is. He won't have to learn it all when he gets there. So God has committed into our hands an earnest of the Spirit. And that's what we use to grow. And now note this, that the guarantee for your success does not lie in your ability. The guarantee for your success lies in the inherent value of the thing committed to you. You follow that? You don't. All right. I will, I will repeat it and then I'll explain it. The, the guarantee for your success does not lie in your ability, your ability to handle what he's given to you. The guarantee for your success lies in the inherent value of the talent or the ministry, if you would, given to you. So he did not say to these men, now take this uh, two talents and go out and invest it in a hardware store in Thessalonica. Just go invest it. Well, where do you want me to? I don't care where you invest it, just go invest it. 
because it has such a character and such a quality that whatever you do with it, it's going to profit. Just whatever you do with it, it's going to profit. So the fellow had two talents, went out and invested his, and he came back with two more. And then he explained where. That's not important. The important is that he invested. The guy had five, went out and invested the five, and he came back with five more. So we have ten and four, and the guy only had one, buried it. I see, therein lies the problem. Hmm? The one that had one went out and buried it in a napkin. By the way, just for what it's worth, department, as one brother would say, uh, he buried it in a napkin. And the Greek word napkin there is sweatband. And it's, it's, it's that thing they wrapped around their heads, you know, when they're working in the field, keep sweating, running in their eyes. And it was associated in Scripture with death. That was the same word that you have uh, describing the thing which Jesus' was, head was wrapped in when he was buried. Sweatband. It's associated with death and it's associated with a curse. Sweat is associated with a curse, isn't it? Uh, the sweat of your face shall earn your keep. So he went, in other words, in a figure and wrapped it in what was fleshly. And he buried it in the ground because he was fearful to use it. Well, as a result of that, not only did he not grow in an understanding of, uh, or, or a maturity, if you would, of how to handle the inheritance that was given to him, but at the same time, what he had was taken from him, and it was given to another, and he was cast into, you better not say hell. What? Outer darkness. It's not hell. It's not hell. Outer darkness has a whole lot more to do with heaven than it does hell. You know, we tend to take a thing that's just, that comes up in an adverse description and just stick it where the category seems most likely. The term outer darkness is associated with a dim place, or obscurity would be a better way of putting it. Put it they were put into outer obscurity. In the words of Proverbs, for example, uh, he that despises his father and does not honor his mother, his light shall be put out in obscurity. That's the idea. And the term is used of nations in this case, so that the nations, Matthew 22, the marriage parable of the marriage uh, feast for the son, the one that the guest that came in without a wedding garment, now don't make that guest the church. My, 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 my. Church is not a guest at the wedding, is she? It would be a strange sort of phenomenon. No, no, no. It's a parable regarding the nations, and we don't have time to address that right now. But that one was bound hand and foot and put into outer darkness. It's the same thing Psalm 149 addresses. We have the authority as the people of God to bind the nations with fetters of iron. Psalm 2, let us break their bands asunder. They want to get loose from the, the fetters of iron that the people of God have put upon them. He was bound hand and foot and cast in outer darkness.